Hello, and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Simone Isagirre Barker, a third-year experimental physics PhD student, and today I'm interviewing Ewan St. John Smith, professor in the Department of Pharmacology here at the University of Cambridge and fellow of Corpus Christi College. His research group investigates the neuronal mechanisms that drive chronic pain and studies these on naked mole rats and other rodent models, and I'm delighted to interview him about his research today. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode. You're a professor in the Department of Pharmacology here at the University of Cambridge, um, where you study pain, particularly the molecular and neuronal basis of pain. Could you tell us a bit about the current scientific understanding of how pain and our experience of it kind of works? Yes, yeah, so pain is a complex thing because it involves both a sensory and emotional component. And most of what my lab tries to do is we try to understand how nerves are activated by things that can induce the sensation of pain and how that changes between health and disease. Because the process by which nerves get activated by something that could cause you damage and make you go, ouch, that's a good thing. It's been evolutionarily conserved. If you make a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. it's too hot. You pick it up and you go, ouch, and put it down again. So that's the good part of pain. Um, but the problem is that Quite often, if someone experiences an injury, then sometimes the processes that um, take place don't resolve normally. And what should usually be a transient episode of perhaps in, um, greater pain, because an inflamed, injured area of the body will have more pain, if that fails to um, resolve properly, then someone ends up in what we call a state of chronic pain. And the real problem we have at the moment is that chronic pain affects about 40% of the adult population, and two-thirds of those people experience inadequate pain management with current therapeutics. So basically, we try to understand more about uh, how nerves are switched on, um, how we could develop new drug targets, developing drugs to target those. It's all about, all about understanding the, the disease process. We largely do that using rodents models of pain. We also interact a lot with clinicians, uh, trying to identify sort of the genetic variations of pain and using human samples to help infer um, more about the understanding of our mechanisms of pain. And so do you study particular disorders or particular types of pain? Yes, yeah, so specifically? Our, our main focus is I guess threefold. One, I'm interested in how nerves are switched on and switched off. So we do a lot of work in the lab looking at the structure and function of certain uh, receptors and genes that are involved in how nerves function. The two main sets of diseases that we focus on are joint-based diseases such as osteo or rheumatoid arthritis. And we also have an interest in visceral pain, so pain in the internal organs, where we've published work on bowel pain, also relates to labour pain. Um, So those are the main things we focus on. And are the mechanisms that cause the pain then very different in those situations? Um, I think one of the reasons we're doing the research, we don't fully understand. Mm, to find that. <laughs> if you look at the therapeutics that are used, um, we have certain drugs that work in some conditions, but not others. So I think what's going to be the case is there'll be overlapping uh, processes that are similar. So, for example, if we take opioids as a class of analgesic, things like morphine, mm be effective at causing pain relief in a lot of different conditions not for all people but they're quite good at causing pain relief but when you take them chronically there are lots of problems associated with them as well as some of the acuter side effects like constipation so that means they're just not appropriate for all forms of of pain and therefore there'll be things like that you can do which target pain in general 
but there will be distinct mechanisms underpinning different diseases. And so if we look at, say, rheumatoid arthritis as a condition, the treatment of that has been revolutionized the last 20 to 30 years by drugs that target disease mechanisms. And I think that's what we're looking for in treating a wide range of diseases um, and different chronic pain conditions is understanding what's particular about that condition rather than assuming that all conditions are going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And do different people have different response? I mean, I assume that what you said before, that different people are affected differently by different types of painkillers and drugs. Is that then linked to how different people kind of manifest that disease or how it unfolds within their body? Yeah, so we do a lot of work in the lab using rodents, which is great mm-hmm. because they're all very, very similar. The problem with humans is there's a great genetic diversity. They've all had different uh, life experiences and all sorts of different things. So when a patient presents with condition X, aged 45, no two people are going to be the same. So we know from the genetic side of things, there are certain genes where if you get certain variations, you can have people have no pain at all. Certain people have heightened pain, and this can affect also the drug response. So yes, the genetic variability in humans is one factor, but there's lots of other things uh, that can affect how someone uh, will experience a syndrome and how they then react to whatever is going on. If we think about, if you measure pain in humans quite often, something you're asked is to rate on a scale of zero to 10, how painful is this where 10 is the worst pain imaginable and of course how you rate that will be based on well, what what's your life experience of pain um you know perhaps you need to go higher and then you might change your rankings so it's it's a very difficult thing to think of we all know what pain is but everyone's experience of pain is going to be very different mm-hmm. and so let's talk more about these um, rodent models that you were talking about because your lab works primarily with naked mole rats right I wouldn't say primarily. You work a lot with naked mole rats, so we use right. the we use mice a lot because mice models of different pain conditions are well developed, and also we've got the ability in mice to uh, edit their genetics. There's lots of different transgenic mice where uh, genes have been either switched off or manipulated in a certain way. So they're really useful as a tool. But the other um, rodent that we use a lot, as you said, is the naked mole rat. So this is an organism that uh, evolved in Africa, um, and it's very unusual in terms of its pain sensation, and it doesn't experience certain stimuli as causing any pain at all, and also has a blunted pain response to other uh, situations. So what we try to do is compare the unusual biology of the naked mole rat in terms of pain and some of its other biology, compare that to the normal biology of a mouse or a human. And if we can work out what makes the naked mole rats unusual, we hope to understand more about the normal biology of, of humans. And how do you actually know that the naked mole rats don't experience pain in that way, right? Because I think that's one of the things that often you think, you know, if, I don't know, you have to kill an ant or like insect, I don't know, you often think how, you know, do different species experience pain and how do we know that? How do you actually know that the naked mole rat doesn't experience pain? Exactly. So we have to always think about that the pain, as I said earlier, is a sensory and emotional um, sensation. And when mm-hmm. we work with rodents or any non-verbal animal or, or human for that matter, we can only really measure the sensory aspects. We don't know how that animal feels, but we infer that when an animal jumps at a painful stimulus, that it's having the same emotional sensations as we feel. So the reason we got interested in studying the naked mole rat is a collaborator of mine, Tom Park at UIC in America, he'd identified that naked mole rats were missing a certain neurotransmitter, so a substance that transmits a signal from one nerve to another nerve um, that was associated with the sensation of pain. So because it seemed they lacked this, what we thought was crucial component, he then did a systematic study of trying to identify how naked mole rats responded to a variety of different stimuli that we know cause pain. And we're talking here transient pain, we're not causing long-term damage. So for example, um, there are studies done in humans where if you inject acid under the skin, it will cause pain. This is similar to if you're in the kitchen 
opportunity and you've got some cut skin, if you spill lemon juice or vinegar into it, it'll give you a stinging sensation. So humans will say, ouch, if you inject them with a small bit of acid under the skin. If you do that with a mouse, the mouse will lick its paw. The mouse won't go, ouch, it might vocalize, but it will lick its paw the same as we might rub our hand if we bang it against something. And so if we did the same experiment with a naked mole rat and we injected it with acid under the paw, it just walked off as though nothing had happened. Um, whereas, for example, if we gave a mechanical stimulus, so a pressure on the paw, the mouse and mole rat responded identically. So by doing this systematic study of um, how mole rats responded to a variety of stimuli, we're able to identify there are certain things they, they did not respond to, which a mouse and a human would do. Mm -hmm. And so what we know or what have your team found out about why that is? So, so there's different explanations for some of the different bits of biology we observed. If we consider the lack of acid sensitivity in the naked mole rat, this turned out to be um, not no. OK, let's go back a step. The, the reason nerves are switched on when you expose them to acid is that there are proteins at the end of the nerve terminal that are activated by acid and that sends, sends a signal off to the spinal cord. And the way the signal gets the spinal cord is through another set of proteins. And these are called voltage gated sodium channels. Now, there are lots of them, but we can, don't have to worry about them too much because if we go to the dentist and something bad is going to be done to you, you'll be injected with a drug that will block the activity of all of these different types of voltage gated sodium channel. Mm. What that means is it means that when your nerves are activated by the dentist drilling or burning out a nerve root, the nerve will be activated, but the signal can't be transmitted. So if we go back to the naked mole rat, the acid would have to be activating the nerve and that signal then gets propagated along the nerve using these voltage gated sodium channels. And what we originally found was that the acid sensitivity of the naked mole rat nerve was very similar. It has many of the same acid sensors that humans and mice do. However, one of those voltage-gated sodium channels that are critical for sending that message along the nerve, it gets inhibited by acid in a similar manner to how a local anesthetic inhibits voltage-gated sodium channels in general. And we were able to identify the one particular voltage-gated sodium channel that was inhibited by acid, the genetic variation that was present that could account for this difference. So for the acid insensitivity, it's a variation in one voltage-gated sodium channel that means acid acts like an anesthetic rather than an activator of their nerves. And so that tells us something about how acid sensation works in humans, because that tells us, okay, that one particular voltage-gated sodium channel must be important in the acid pain pathway. So that's what I meant earlier on when I said that by studying the extreme phenotype of this animal, we can work mm -hmm. that back to try and understand more about normal biology in the human. And so then how does it then translate to, because you were talking about different types of diseases and how we might understand how we experience pain and, you know, when we experience that type of disease, then using that information to develop new types of drugs and new types of treatment. Is there a situation in which you found something in your animal models that then gives you like a new pathway to treat existing conditions? So if we take that example of the naked mole rat and this genetic variation in this one particular voltage-gated sodium channel, um, at a similar sort of time, people are identifying mutations in uh, this gene in humans that either cause them no pain or lots of pain. And also people using uh, transgenic mouse models where they manipulated this ion channel were finding similar things. So at a similar sort of time, there's information coming from human genetic variations, mouse transgenics, and then this weird naked mole rats, all saying, hey, look, this ion channel is particularly important in certain pain pathways. And although we aren't directly involved, there are now drugs in phase three clinical trials targeting this one particular voltage-gated sodium channel. And what could be really important is that this voltage-gated sodium channel is almost exclusively expressed, so present, in those nerves that are responsible for detecting 
painful stimuli. So if we think about the local anesthetic I mentioned earlier at the dentist, that blocks all sorts of voltage-gated sodium channels on all types of nerve fiber. And that wouldn't be practical for providing uh, pain relief to the whole individual because you'd be numbing their ability to feel everything and anything, which of course could be dangerous. So the, the advantage of blocking this one voltage-gated sodium channel is it's not present on those nerves that are involved in detecting light touch, for example. Mm -hmm. And so what are you investigating currently? What is the I mean, obviously you're investigating all of this generally, but is there a specific like new type of pathway or interesting thing about the naked mole rat or, you know, in the mouse models that your research group is focusing on currently? So in the mouse models in particular, what we've started doing in the last few years is trying to consider um, gene therapy as a way of dealing with pain. So there are two ways you can deal with a chronic condition like osteoarthritis. You can try and cure the condition, which of course would be excellent. But the main symptom that people experience in the driest clinical decision-making is pain. So what we do in the lab is we try to target the pain relief and we accept we're not going to cure the disease. There are other people working on that. And one of the big problems we have with lots of currently used analgesics is side effects where they do things to other parts of the body than the nerves at the site of injury. So when we use um, when we think about gene therapy, what we're trying to do is use viruses to deliver genes to nerves at the site of injury. And by doing that, you can change the genetic information in that nerve and maybe then control the way it senses pain. And so we've done some studies in mice using a few different uh, forms of viruses that deliver a certain form of gene to these nerves that innovate just the knee so that we only switch, we only um, end up in a situation where we modulate their activity. And although this site might seem a bit far-fetched, it's actually not that dissimilar an idea to what already happens with people with arthritic conditions. So if, for example, um, you have osteoarthritis, you'll have swelling of the knee joint, and every so often you'll probably have to go to the rheumatology clinic and they'll suck out your synovial fluid in your knee joint to relieve the pressure, and they'll give you a steroid injection into the knee to dampen down the inflammation in that knee joint. So what we're thinking about is, well, you could do a similar thing, but rather than injecting a steroid, which is very non-specific, you could inject a viral vector that targets the nerves innervating the knee and manipulates their activities. They're no longer causing the same sensation of pain. So we've done this in a few different uh, ways in mice, and that's the technology we're now looking to try and modify it to make it ever more specific as a, a way you might be able to treat people uh, in a more specific targeted fashion. And how do these genes actually get like activated into the, because I imagine if you're delivering some genetic material with, you know, using this injection even locally, then how does that then translate to modifying that? So what the viruses do that we use is there, there are different types of virus and the virus we use is very, very good at infecting sensory nerves. So it doesn't really affect the other tissue. So you inject this virus into the knee joint and it gets taken up by the nerves that innervate that joint. And the virus we've manipulated so that what it does is it encodes another form of ion channel within that nerve. And that ion channel is just sitting there at rest doing nothing, um, but we can then administer a substance to the mouse that is inert, doesn't have any effect on the entire animal, other than this new uh, ion channel we've put into the animal, and it causes those nerves to be switched off. So it's a way that we can uh, make the body respond to a substance that it wouldn't usually respond to, but in a very restricted fashion to enable pain control. So you're like hacking the knee, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. We're just, we're hacking the, the ability of how that nerve works. Mm -hmm. And so then, um, in terms of how you actually carry out this research with all these different um, rodent models, like how do you actually 
investigate the these neural pathways and so on? Do you have to do, like, I don't know, like little MRIs on them? Or I don't know, how do you actually detect what's going on inside the, the sensory kind of networks inside these animals? I think something that's really important to understand is all animal research is conducted under the auspices of the Home Office in the UK. So it's all under the Animal Scientific, Scientific Procedures Act 1986, Amendment Regulations 2012. And you have to get permission to do every single specific thing that you would like to do, but you have to justify it. It's all done on a cost uh, benefit analysis. And so what we do is we try to get as much information out of any given animal as we possibly can. Because obviously, if we're going to study osteoarthritis, we need to induce that state in a mouse, which is an unpleasant thing to do. So we don't want to just do it for fun, we need to do it with targeted objectives and know what we're going to be measuring. So we will start off by measuring the animal's behavior, how that animal's behavior changes over time with that particular condition. And you can do this in different ways. You can measure the same as you do in humans, how the weight bearing changes. So if someone's got an injured limb, they'll put more weight on the other limb and mice will do exactly the same thing. Mice, like humans, enjoy doing physically active things. So mice are like digging in a new environment. But if they're injured, they don't enjoy doing it so much. So we use those sorts of behavioral analyses. And then we will also, be, you, you can do different sort of histological analyses to see how the pathology of the joint changes over time. Um, and then at the end of the study, we isolate nerves from those mice to understand how their activity changes over time. And we've now got quite a lot of information from a variety of different models where we've been able to show that nerves that supply the site of injury become hyper excitable and that underpins why people have an increase in pain sensation and so what we try to do is understand okay what's changing those nerves to make them hyper excitable can we therefore identify new targets for providing pain relief i mean how do you actually know what happens in the nerves themselves like how do you actually image them or so fundamentally, a nerve, or the nervous system is basically like an electronic circuit. You switch it on at the end, a signal travels to the spinal cord, up to the brain, back out, and you respond accordingly. And so what we're able to do is we can isolate the nerves, and we can put inside them a very small electrode. So a nerve from a mouse might be, say, 20 micrometers in diameter. So they're very small. We can put inside of them an electrode where the ending is about 0.5 micrometers. So once we're inside the nerve, we can then measure changes in the electrical activity of that nerve in response to certain stimuli, or we can inject electrical activity into that nerve and see how it responds. So that's one way by which we can do it. There are lots of other methods you can use, but that's, I would argue, the most sensitive one to really understand how the activity of that nerve changes over different, uh, over different during different disease pathologies. Mm -hmm. And so then besides the fact that the naked mole rats you know, don't experience pain to the extent to which maybe these other um, rodents do they also um, have a, a lower rate of cancer is that correct there's other like interesting biology that they yeah present. they're very bizarre animals so if you look at humans basically any human born up born after 1960 there's a one in two chance of developing cancer during our lifetime and um, that's an age-related risk it's not that every day you wake up and it's a one in two chance and as you get older the chance of developing cancer is more common um and naked mole rats have a much lower prevalence of cancer. So there are a few cases identified, but basically they don't really seem to get it very frequently. Uh, to put that in, in contrast to mice, mice, just like humans, get cancer with about sort of 50 to 60%. Uh, whereas my naked mole rats, there have been a few cases, but it's very much a lower incidence. And so again, what we try to do is study processes that might explain the cancer resistance of the naked mole rats. And if you could do that, you might be able to identify new targets for either preventing or treating cancer in, in humans and other companion animals like dogs and cats and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so what has the research community found so far about that? <laughs> 
So it's a really uh, interesting but controversial area. And I think one of the problems is if we compare it to other areas of research, there are very few groups working with this unusual species because they're much more difficult to look after than, say, uh, mice or or rats. Um, So one of the first theories put forward was that naked mole rat cells would just be very resistant to the process where they would go from being a healthy cell to becoming a cancerous cell. Um, But my group, in collaboration with others, was able to show that, no, actually, naked mole rat cells can undergo this process, just like mouse and human cells can. So we don't think there's anything particularly unusual about naked mole rat cells being just resistant to ever developing cancer. But it must be more how an individual cell, when that event occurs, is dealt with differently within the naked mole rat's body. And there's a lot of work ongoing at the moment to try and understand, is it differences to do with the immune system? Does the naked mole rat cell, does the naked mole rat body just recognize these uh, odd cells and somehow get rid of them more quickly? But we really don't know. We're doing a lot of work to try and find out. But I think it's still safe to say that the jury is out there at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so it's quite interesting that, um, you know, what you described is almost like a serendipitous finding about how these naked molars responding to stimuli has then opened up all these different ways of thinking about um, pain and st- how to study it. Do you think that there's other kind of animal models or other systems out there that, you know, we could, you know, maybe in 10 years time, we'll be talking about some other animal and how it specifically interacts with pain? Yeah, yeah, I, I think there are lots of extremes of biology, which are very exciting. I mean, if we think about the fact that in the past few years, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, virtually everyone in the world has probably experienced one, if not very many, uh, PCR tests to detect, you know, mm. have you got the virus or not. And the only reason that PCR works is because people were studying bacteria that were isolated from Yellowstone Park in thermal vents. So these are bacteria that were living quite happily at very high temperatures. And if you're going to live at high temperatures, that means you have to have enzymes that can be resistant to being degraded at high temperatures. But if you're running at high temperatures, you can do things very quickly. And so the reason that PCR is great is because you can run reactions very, very quickly because we isolated this one enzyme from this one bacteria that's able then to do to do this process much more rapidly. And that, I think, demonstrates what you can learn from studying an extreme biological event. Um, in terms of pain research, there's some other very interesting uh, organisms out there. One that I'm particularly fascinated by is the grasshopper mouse, um, which has evolved a relationship with the bark scorpion. Well, it's a bit of a one-way relationship because usually bark scorpion scorpions uh, sting um, and the venom usually switches on one of those voltage gated sodium channels I mentioned earlier to cause pain. Um, But in the grasshopper mouse, it's evolved a different voltage gated sodium channel to be switched off by this venom. So when the bark scorpion attacks the mouse, it doesn't care. It carries on attacking the scorpion, wins, and that's why it can live off these bark scorpions. And again, by studying that the group that works on this, we're able to identify how that venom targets this one particular ion channel. Uh, you can look at the structure function. You can then look at developing drugs that might be able to target that to switch it off to cause pain relief. So that's just another example of the sort of thing that might be uh, spotted by just studying natural behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so you talk a lot about these different pathways, these different ion channels, like how many are in the body, like, you know, orders of magnitude wise? Is it just every single possible, you know, pathway that could exist for a particular molecule has one of these networks? Or are there some generic ones? It depends. If we think about how nerves are switched on by stimuli that can cause pain, there are a huge variety of ion channels and some other sorts of receptors present at the end of cells. Um, Some of these are very specific. So if you think about um, 
eating hot food and the spicy food. And the reason it tastes hot is because it's got a chili peppers in it, maybe, and that contains capsaicin. The more capsaicin present, the hotter something will be. And so capsaicin only activates one particular iron channel. And the reason it tastes hot is because that iron channel is also activated by heat above about 43, 44 degrees. Um, so there are some things which are very specific like that, but there are other um substances are detected by a wider variety of, of ion channels. So for example, acid activates a wide variety of ion channels and receptors in different ways. Um, so it, it depends on the substance or the uh, the thing we're talking about. We obviously can detect mechanical forces. There's been a great lot of interest in the last 10 years trying to identify ion channels involved in detecting that mechanical force. So those that we would call mechanotransducing ion channels, as well as other proteins in the body that can modulate that response. So it's more complicated than just asking, how does a nerve get switched on? There are also then processes by which that can be modulated. So it's not just a binary on off, it can also be adapted under different circumstances. And that's one of the reasons why, um, I don't know, if you're running and you fall over and hit your knee and it becomes red and inflamed and everything becomes more sensitive, one of the reasons it becomes more sensitive is that your body releases all these inflammatory substances that change the properties of lots of those ion channels that yesterday were detecting heat at like 43 degrees, but their sensitivity is now changed so that maybe it's being activated at 38 degrees. So this changed the sensitivity of the system. So that at least when I try to stand back and be objective about things and I ignore the chronic pain side, it's a, just an absolutely amazing system to work in. And you understand the evolutionary sensitivities or pressures that led to the system developing. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's very different between different people as well, right? Like people's heat perception, even when it comes to like spicy foods or even just temperature of like water and stuff, like everyone has very different reactions to that. Do we know why that is? So, so, hang on, so, so yes and no, it depends what the stimulus is. So if you do things in a controlled manner, so you can do uh, quantitative sensory testing um, where you're trying to give a stimulus and you get a quantitative measurement out. And if you do this with humans, you can put a thermode on the back of their arm and um, you can sit opposite a, a computer. The person controls the computer and they control the temperature of this thermode going up and down. And you can make it go warm, you can make it cold, you can make it go very hot. And you're asking the person to constantly tell you, okay, can you tell me if you said that's warm, as cold, painfully hot? And for detecting that as painfully hot, virtually everybody will respond somewhere between 42 and 44 degrees. For cold, there's a much greater variability. But for heat, it's very well conserved. And that kind of makes sense evolutionarily because heat will damage the body very, very quickly. So you need to respond to, you know, there's no point in having a heat detection of 60 degrees because by that point, your skin and tissues will be being damaged. So 43 degrees might seem quite a low temperature, but that's actually a temperature that you will respond to before damage occurs. But obviously, how you respond to a stimulus will change in non-controlled conditions. So if you're playing sport or something, let's say you're playing rugby and, you know, you only notice in the shower afterwards, you've got blood pouring from a gash in your leg because you didn't notice at the time because you're being distracted by other things. Your focus is elsewhere, but also your body is releasing substances to control the pain. And we see this also in war zones where people who've been injured because of the adrenaline and other processes going on, that will modulate the pain response. So there's both a genetic side of it and then there's also going to be all the context of what's going on. And yeah, there will be differences between individuals, but overall, lots of things are very conserved. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the research that you're doing now, like kind of looking forward, what are the things that you're most excited about? Um, um, I think there's two main things we're excited about. One is, is this developing these viral tools to try and control nerve activity. Could that lead to more targeted therapies? And the other is we're part of this very large 
um, Visor Pain Consortium between UCL, King's, Edinburgh and Cambridge. Um, and one of the things we're doing here is we're studying a lot of patient cohorts and doing a lot of quantitative sensory testing and genotyping. So through this, by studying um, disease cohorts, so things like inflammatory bowel disease, endometriosis, I'm hopeful we might be able to identify some genetic variants of interest that might explain um, either the extreme pain or lessened pain that certain people experience. And by understanding the genes that can regulate pain, we might be able to develop new therapeutics to target these processes. Well, thanks so much for chatting. It's been fascinating to learn more about pain. Um, and I'm sure everybody listening will also relate to different aspects, perhaps, of what we've been talking about. So thank you. No worries. Happy to happy to talk about pain, as always. <laughs> thanks again to Professor Ewanson John Smith for taking the time to share his research with us. To find out more about his group, you can visit his website, www.phar.cam.ac.uk forward slash research forward slash smith or find him on twitter with the handle at p-s-a-l-m-o-t-o-x-i-n make sure to follow the cambridge festival on facebook twitter instagram and youtube for more fascinating events and follow the say that again slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms thanks for listening